Hey everyone, it's Emmy with an episode of the Marketing Cyber Podcast. Today, I have an incredible episode for you. It's with the CMO of Exonius, Nathan Burke. Out of all the marketing professionals that I pay attention to, I consider Nathan a leader in the cybersecurity industry. Not only is Nathan an extremely helpful and kind person, but he is passionate about solving real problems. I think you're going to love his story, the stories that he tells, and his advice. So with all that being said, here is Nathan Burke on the Marketing Cyber Podcast. Yeah, I wanted to start the podcast by getting some information about your background, tell our listeners how you got into marketing, how you got in cybersecurity, and what were some of those ups and downs along the way? Yeah, so like everything else, it's never a straight line. I mean, maybe it is for some people. It definitely isn't for me. So I started off going to college as a marketing major and soon realized I was really bored. And uh, I, I went into it thinking I was going to love marketing and I just I wasn't learning anything. And instead, I ended up taking a, a sociology course and said, this is it for me. I love it. I love what I'm learning and understanding how people behave and think in groups. And it was just something where instead of having a project where I'm trying to design a cereal box with a team, I'm really trying to figure out why we do the things we do, especially uh, as groups. And and I love that. And so I went, started as a marketing major, switched to sociology. Uh, and then when I graduated from college, there weren't an awful lot of sociology jobs out there. And so during that time, uh, I went to Northeastern, which is a five-year school and it has the co-op program. So you ended up working half the time and then uh, doing jobs half the time. So it was great for me because I got to go through a series of jobs and realize what I did and didn't like. I worked at a software company, a law firm. I worked on an independent feature film. I had all of these experiences to understand the things I liked, the things I didn't like. And when I graduated from college, I went to work at a law firm where I was uh, a developer. So I was building all of their websites. I had taught myself how to code throughout college. And then um, I decided that's what I was going to do for a while. And having someone that is interested in sociology being by themselves coding probably wasn't the best fit, but that's what I did. And I soon learned that writing code wasn't the thing that was exciting to me, but but actually promoting and understanding how to get people to visit the site. And that's when I started to look elsewhere and decided that I didn't want to be a developer. Instead, I, I found my way back to the marketing side after taking a pretty long detour. Did you ever regret not getting that marketing degree when you decided to start going back? No, not at all. Not at all. Um, I, I, yeah, I think there are some people that are really good at saying, this is what I want to do. And therefore I'm going to get as deep as I possibly can with it. That's mm -hmm. not me. Um, for me, the way I learn is entirely experiential. Um, I, I learn so much more from doing the thing than I do reading about it and, and then trying to um, reverse it that way. Like I, I learn by doing, and I don't think there's anything that I could have done in a marketing class that would have benefited my career more than getting out there and doing it myself. What was that journey from when you decided, okay, you know, actually marketing is what I want to do. Tell me that journey and what sure. the experiences you had to get back to marketing. 
Yeah. So um, after after being a developer, I went to my first startup, and we were a company that was um, building a media recommendation engine. And we built this thing where we could tell you what blogs, what videos, what music, what websites, all of the things that we think you should love based on a lot of data science. And it was a really cool transition because I went from being a developer to being somewhere in the middle. Uh, I was a a web community evangelist, which is one of the cooler titles I've ever had, uh, where we were trying to get developers to, to build applications on our platform. And that was my first startup. And it was, it was the amazing ride where it was the first time that I'd been a part of a team where no matter what function you were in, everyone was just all in. There was no such thing as this isn't my job. It was a, we're willing to do whatever it takes to get this thing done to do something impossible, to bring something to the world. And, and it was great. And just like any kind of roller coaster ride, there, there has to be an end. And in this case, we went from one day having, I think, 52 people or so and riding high to the next morning, finding out that uh, all of our funding was pulled and everyone was out of a job. So it was, it was definitely an experience. I still look back on it fondly. Uh, luckily, so far, it's been the only startup I've been a part of that, uh, that failed. So that is very relevant at the moment. There's a lot of people without jobs throughout this coronavirus pandemic. So what advice would you give a marketer who may have lost their job suddenly to get out there and get employed again? Yeah, I think the biggest thing, and I'm not really sure if this is a satisfying answer, but it is one, which is just being able to network as much as you possibly can. And I am constantly talking to marketers that are looking for something, trying to figure out what their next thing is. But I, I spend more of my time on the other end where I'm talking to entrepreneurs that just founded uh, a new cybersecurity company. I talked to two of them yesterday where they're looking for marketing talent. And I think one of the interesting things about cybersecurity marketing, at least in the last few years, and I've, I've lived this myself, which is it used to be you would come up with an idea, you would build a product, you get it to, uh, let's say, an MVP, and that's when you'd start thinking about marketing. And I'm seeing the opposite happening right now, where I think the tide has turned, where uh, entrepreneurs within cybersecurity realize how important marketing is. And for example, right now at Exonius, I was the first US hire before we had a product. And I'm sure we'll talk a lot about that later, but that's what I'm seeing, which is marketing has become increasingly important in cybersecurity since it's just such a crowded market, having any kind of differentiation and really sets you apart. And so I'm seeing, I'm seeing a change there where I'm constantly being contacted by entrepreneurs at cybersecurity companies saying, can you recommend someone in marketing for this or for operations or for branding or you name it? So I think in cybersecurity, if you have cybersecurity marketing experience, the jobs are out there, the people are out there. I think networking is absolutely critical for anyone looking to um, to find their next role, because there's just a huge shortage of people with experience and talent out there. And with how many companies there are getting formed every single day, even funding, getting funded right now, um, they're out there. It's just a mismatch of the, the supply and demand. So when talking to these people, are they looking for somebody with cybersecurity knowledge that can market or people with marketing knowledge? that can learn cybersecurity? 
I think it's a little, a little bit both. of both. Yeah, it's, it's a little bit of both. And I think it depends on where they are in the company's lifespan. So if it's, mm-hmm. uh, I feel like in a lot of cases, uh, a company that just got seed funding, for instance, probably doesn't want to hire someone that has no experience in cybersecurity and can can teach them. I think you kind of need someone that has that experience to understand it because you're trying to move fast and getting someone up to speed is a little harder than if you're a company that's, you know, I guess if you're, uh, I don't know, series B, series C, you're in, in growth phase, then you're looking for people that are just smart people that can apply marketing to cybersecurity rather than really knowing the inside and outside of, of the industry. And, I, and I'm in the same boat myself right now. So I, I just hired someone uh, on the content side that didn't have any cybersecurity experience. And because I know somebody that's smart, that's been in a different industry, that wasn't an expert in that industry, they can just pick it up, right? They can understand the acronyms and figure out the categories and and understand the nuance between the different tools and, and the, the audiences. And at that point, it's a translation exercise. Um, so I think the way that I would answer that is, depending on the stage of the company, you either want someone with really deep cybersecurity expertise to build something versus when you're trying to grow, you just want really smart people to own the functions. So tell me about the point where you first got into cybersecurity and what was that journey like? Sure. So the the company I was just referencing uh, when when our funding ran out and uh, when that company went bust, uh, I was looking around for my next thing. And that's when I, I found a company that was early stage. They were doing something that was part storage, part security. They definitely wanted to deliver SaaS. Wasn't sure exactly what that was going to be yet. And that company was called Aprigo. You will forget that name by the end of this, as you should. It was one of those where let's take the founder's name, mash them together, come up with a word, make sure it starts with an A, right? Marketing 101. And so we built this product and, and I was running marketing there. And we saw that companies were starting to use cloud platforms like like Google Apps. And they were starting to move from running their own exchange servers to it just makes sense to be able to fire up a new user and they've got docs and they've got Gmail and they got whatever else. So we said, why don't we build a version of our product for companies that are storing information in Google? We'll give that away for free and use that as lead gen for the other thing. Well, it turned out the exact opposite was true. People wanted to buy the the cloud version. And so we decided, you know what, we're going to go all in on cloud. And I then was able to convince the, the founders that we should change the name of our company we then rebranded as CloudLock, and that was one of the early CASB solutions that later sold to, uh, to Cisco. And so that, that was my first one. Um, I was there for, for quite some time. It was a lot of fun. I learned a lot. And um, after that, I, I had a couple of other startups that weren't in cybersecurity, but were kind of tangentially relevant to security. One in accounts payable, and there's some security stuff there. Another was a, a collaboration company. Again, there's a lot of security involved. And then the, the next was Hexadite, which that was the land speed record where I was the, the first marketing hire. I was VP of marketing there. We existed for a year and a half before we were acquired by Microsoft. You went from a lot of startups to Microsoft. And how was that? I was only there for a cup of coffee. So when we got acquired, um, all of the development team, everyone um, on the, on the uh, product side in Israel, joined Microsoft. They're all still there, but I realized 
there is not much of a fit for me to be at Microsoft. Like um, I'm not a good fit for them. They're not a good fit for me. So I just helped them in the transition for four months. And I took that four months as a way for me to decide and have four months to figure out exactly what I want to do next. And it, it really let me decide what are my requirements for my next company? And for the first time, I, I actually wrote it out, right? I said, my next company, I want to be at a cybersecurity startup. I want it to be a company that is solving an old problem that's getting worse. I want them to be solving it with something that's really, really simple. And I want to really like the, the founders. And, and, you know, it sounds simple, but it's not, right? Um, I think when you look at both Hexadite, which was the company before this one, and you look at CloudLock, in both of those cases, we had a product that was way ahead of the market. So having uh, a, an early CASB solution before that's even a category, you end up spending a lot of time evangelizing the problem. And at Hexadite, it was the same thing where you have to be pretty mature as a security organization to talk about security automation orchestration. And so we were talking a lot about problem and, and evangelizing that there was a problem out there that's going to get worse that, that needs solving. But it was it was only relevant to, to a very small audience. I wanted to have the opposite. I wanted to have something where everyone has this problem and I wanted to be able to market to a pool of people that, that weren't saying, oh yeah, that's not my problem. But instead we're saying, yeah, I've got this problem, but I, I don't know, can you really solve this? And so I spent a lot of time thinking of that. And um, I, that's, I, I loved having those four months to, to spend time to write that down, to really come up with almost like an evaluation criteria on all of the new opportunities that we're seeing. And I talked to uh, five or six cybersecurity startups seriously. Uh, and then when, uh, when I heard about Exonius, um, I think I made the right choice. I'm, I'm happy to tell you that story if you, if you want me to. What was it about cybersecurity that you were so drawn to? Yeah. I mean, there's a lot, right? <laughs> I think if you're like me, you're kind of drawn to the challenge. And um, I heard somebody say this the other day. Uh, I'm a big fan of Peloton. Do you know what Peloton is? Yes. The bikes, right? I love it. Yeah. Um, I think part of it is the competition aspect. And I was watching one of the rides and one of the teachers said something like, um, my philosophy is if it's hard, sign me up and I'll be the first to volunteer. And that mm -hmm. it kind of struck me as funny because, you know, you think of this and you're saying, all right, I'm going to join a company in an industry where thousands of companies are founded every year, all of which are saying they do exactly the same thing. Everyone says they can prevent everything, they can detect everything, and then they can remediate everything. And of course, if they did the first one right, you wouldn't have to do the other two. And it's super crowded. Nobody knows the difference between two, two things. The audience that you're trying to sell to has an immediate disrespect for anyone in their claims. Like, you've got to be nuts to do this. And I say, yeah, I love it. It's the best. Um, because it is such a huge challenge, right? And I think the other thing that that people don't talk about a lot, but is it's underlying and true within cybersecurity, which is we're not selling tires here, right? We're we're actually trying to do something that is needed and is right, and and we're doing something for good. We're we're trying to help people keep their data safe and keep their employees able to work and and not have their information posted all over the internet for anyone to see, right? So there, there is something fundamentally good about cybersecurity, but it's also incredibly challenging. But I also love the community because 
it's it's funny to to think about, but when when you're in cybersecurity and you're a practitioner and you're you're trying to defend your information and keep it safe, there's really no competition. And what I mean by that is, if I'm if I'm in security at uh, let's just pick like a retailer, um, and then my competition, you would think that I'm not going to cooperate with them. Right. You think like from a marketing side, I'm not going to if, if I've got a competitor, I'm not going to talk to them. But in security, it's it's exactly the opposite. All of these people talk together. And we've had several customers that I've talked to that introduce us to each other that are, you know, on the front page or, or always competing with each other. But they're all sharing data and they're all sharing information because they're in it together, because being able to help your friend stay secure is going to come back to you, too because they all share information. So there's just so many different aspects about cybersecurity that I love. And um, I, I would do, uh, there's nowhere else I'm going to go for the rest of my career. I'm staying in cybersecurity because I love the challenge. I love the community and I love doing something that, that fundamentally is good. Yeah, it is. It is a great industry. I agree. So I want to hear your story about getting into Exonius. And then I want to hear about the actual challenges that were in this marketing for cybersecurity and all of how we address those. So yeah. tell me about your journey to getting into Exonius. Sure. So um, we, where we left off was uh, Hexadite getting acquired by Microsoft. And I had four months to figure out what I wanted to do next. I'm talking to a bunch of companies. And one day I get a call from the investor that was the, the seed investor in Hexadite. And he calls me and he said, I've got this new company I just funded and I want you to take a look at them. I said, sure. So I got on the call with, with the, uh, one of the, with the CEO and the co-founder of Exonius. And we talked for five or 10 minutes. And um, I said, listen, I, I would love to, to continue this conversation, but next, next week I'm going down to, uh, to the Microsoft Ignite conference in Orlando. I've, I've got a speaking session there. So maybe the week after that, we can catch up. And he stopped me and he said, I've, I've got a better idea. When you're at that conference, I'm going to fly across the country and I'm going to meet you there for breakfast to make you an offer. Now, mind you, this is maybe 10 minutes into a conversation. And I, I, I was kind of taken aback. And he said, we're going to build a formidable company and I need a formidable CMO. So I will meet you there for breakfast to make you an offer. And I'm like, this guy must be nuts. And and that's what he did. So um, he and uh, one, one of the other co-founders they were in San Francisco. They flew to Orlando at five in the morning to sit down and make me an offer before we'd ever met in person. And I'm like, this is the kind of guy I got to work with. <laughs> this this kind of, this person is bold and he's probably insane. They're not mutually exclusive, but I still want to work with them. And, and I made the decision right then and there before they had a product at all uh, that I was going to spend, you know, the next few years of my life working with these guys. And, and I haven't looked back since. And, um, I think it was one of the best decisions I've ever made. So what is it about you that you you personally think made this guy fly to Orlando to talk to you? Well, part of it was he knew the, the co-founders of the last company uh, of Hexadite and saw that within a year and a half, we went from you know something that no one had ever heard of to being uh, acquired by Microsoft. And um, I think part of it too is that he, you know, back channeled me. He he talked to some other people that I had worked with and, and said that, you know, I, I, I'm not saying this because I'm patting myself on the back, but I think uh, I, I've got somewhat of a reputation for being able to 
take a company that is, uh, you know, a, an, an unknown cybersecurity company, develop the story, figure out how to tell it to a market and, and bring it to market. So I, I think I've, because I've done that a couple of times, uh, I think that certainly helped me. I had something of a re- reputation there, but m- more than that was um, the references from the people that I've worked with. And, um, and I think that's, that's what got them on the plane. So do you think it's super valuable for marketers to be very public about what they're doing and being open on media and like you said previously, networking and building those relationships, obviously, but addition to that? It's it's a balance, right? Because you don't want to be one of those guys that's just all over LinkedIn all of the time promoting themselves and making themselves look like a guru. Like, I think that's <laughs> that's something that people can sniff out. Um I think it's certainly important to show your work and to be able to demonstrate the value that, that you've brought. Um, but I think the networking aspect of it is, is much more important. And, and I'll, I'll say on top of that, I think it's even more important to help other people out. And, and that's, you know, I do this all the time. I, I, I was on a call twice yesterday with two early stage cybersecurity companies trying to help them with their story. I get nothing out of that other than I like helping people. And I know that the more you do that, the more it comes back in the end. And even if it doesn't, it feels good to help, but it also keeps you sharp, right? There's there's something about it for me that if I'm helping someone in a cybersecurity company that's completely irrelevant to what, what we're doing, it makes me kind of stretch that muscle and, and stay sharp. And that's always, always helpful. But if tomorrow Exonius went away, I, I just know that in helping other people out and being able to, to have that network that, you know, I, I'd be fine tomorrow. So I think it's really important. It's there's just so much benefit to to helping other people, and that's that's what I would suggest anyone does. It's it's helpful to everyone around, and and it keeps you sharp. I love that. That's great. So, what are the challenges that you're seeing as a marketer in the cybersecurity industry? Yeah, I think the hardest part. Um, there might be two of them. Uh, one is just differentiation and being able to tell your story such that someone can tell you apart from, from someone else. And, you know, when I think about it and I walk through the the halls at, at RSA and look at all the booths, I can't imagine being someone on the other end that's actually trying to solve a problem because it all looks alike. It really, really does. And if you're not able to, to stand apart from, from anyone else, it's going to be really, really difficult. And, and that's something that, that I think we do pretty well at Exonius. I think we did it pretty well at some of the other companies too, is just being able to have a very, very simple story. And um, that's, I think that's what helped when we won the Innovation Sandbox at RSA in 2019 is having a story that can everyone can connect to and remember. Um, I think as marketers, it's really easy to just talk about our product and how it's the greatest thing in the world. And you'd be an idiot if you didn't buy it. And uh, it's got all these features and functions and bells and whistles. But if you can't make that connection so that someone remembers it in, in five minutes, an hour, five months, it doesn't matter how good your product is. No, but that is a challenge. I feel a lot of marketers do not know how to flip that switch and not talk about themselves. Sure. So what, what kind of techniques or what, what do you tell your team if you're willing to share to flip that switch off and market an actual pain. Yeah. So I think the best way to think about it is what is the value you're bringing? What are the problems that you're solving? And, and another important part is 
if I'm able to solve that problem for you, what else are you able to do? And, and here's what I mean by that. So we're talking about something that, that we call the least sexy part of cybersecurity, and that's asset management, right? We've, we've compared ourselves or, or asset management to like, it's like the Toyota Camry of cybersecurity where everything else is like sexy and it's like the Lamborghini or Ferrari or whatever. Asset management isn't that. It's like the most fundamental thing. Like how many laptops do I have and, and what's on them and how many IoT devices or cloud instances and what security solutions are, are covering them, right? It is not the most exciting thing in the world. And so when we talk about that, first of all, we're willing to say that. I'm willing to say this, you know, we're solving this unsexy problem and um, you're going to find a lot of high tech solutions out there. This isn't that. But you're spending a lot of time on this anyway. If you're trying to get some deception technology or endpoint protection or malware, whatever, how are you going to effectively use that if you don't know what you have? Right. So the, the first part is getting to that fundamental problem of of why is this hard? But then also, if you're spending all of this time just figuring out what you have, then you're not doing the stuff that people in cybersecurity want to be doing in cybersecurity. And if if you're competing for these high pay, highly paid resources and then making them count laptops, are you going to be surprised if they leave tomorrow for another like $10,000 and, and a nice dinner to go across the street? And they are, and they're going to do that. So I think part of it is the the... the the value of the problem, what you can give them back, but also what are the kind of soft benefits? And then what's the opportunity cost of the way that they're doing things now? And so if you're spending a hundred hours to get an asset inventory right now, well, there's that hard cost, but also what could those people be doing? Like they could be doing something like threat hunting or more thorough investigations or whatever, anything other than this manual work. So it's really dissecting both the problem that they face the manual work they're doing around it to solve it right now, and then what else they could be doing if they weren't spending their time on this thing that's low value. You mentioned winning the RSA Innovation Sandbox, and I've heard this story, and it's a great one, and I would love for you to share it again. Sure, sure. I'll try to give the short version of this, but um, (laughs) if you don't know, the RSA Innovation Sandbox is, it's kind of like the biggest award that you can get as a cybersecurity startup. And RSA every year, they pick 10 companies out of a few hundred submissions as finalists. If you're a finalist, you have to put a three-minute presentation together that you give on stage in front of about 2,500 people in a panel of judges. One is crowned the, the winner and the most innovative company of the year. And I've tried, I tried to get in at Hexadite, didn't get in. I tried to get in the first year at Exonius, didn't get in. Second year at Exonius, we got in and I was really psyched. So we were one of 10. And so we spent a month with me and our CEO just working on the presentation, getting it down exactly to the second, finding that hook in the story and having the the perfectly planned out three minute story and judges demo and all that stuff. And so we were feeling pretty confident getting there. Um, I went there a day early because I wanted to set up the booth. And the night before the Innovation Sandbox, around midnight, I get a call from our CEO and he said, my plane, it just got canceled. We have this huge snowstorm on the East Coast and there's no way I'm going to be there in time. You're going to have to do it. And I said, all right, (laughs) I guess I will then. And so I stayed up all night. I practiced my three minutes a hundred times and I got there in the morning to do the, uh, the rehearsal. 
I got on stage and totally bombed. I mean, it was ugly. And he had 15 minutes, so you could do it five times if you felt like it. But as soon as I bombed, they said, all right, do you want to do it again? I said, no. Because I just had a feeling that that's as, as bad as it's going to be. And I don't want to do it again. And so I didn't. And I, I left the stage after bombing and um, then came back and uh, and gave my best three minutes. I, I got tripped up once. You can see it in the video, but I found my place. And then they, they announced the, the two finalists. And I said, hey, that's pretty great. We just got to be one of two finalists. That's awesome. I'm pretty happy with that. And then the fact that we won, you can actually see my knees buckle in the video. And and as soon as that happened, everything changed. And uh, we were getting Fortune 50 customers that would never return our calls, calling us to meet with them during RSA. That immediately became our customer. And that really put us on the map. And um, and since then, we've grown like crazy. We've done two other funding rounds. And um, we continue to grow at a, at a really fast pace. But that was... That was kind of the the point on the map where I could see everything go up and to the right. What did you learn from that experience? I learned it's all about the story because I, I sat and watched so many other people do the same thing where they're just talking about their product and, and they're not reading the audience. And, and the audience there is you have three minutes and it's the trailer to the movie. You're not going to sell someone on your entire approach in that three minutes. The best you can possibly get in that three minute demo is them to say, I want to come over and see more. Whereas a lot of people try to tell the entire story and throw as much as they possibly can in every slide. Instead, the idea is entice them to a point where you pique their interest so that you can deliver when you do the demo, when they come to your booth or when you connect after the conference. So how did you prepare for that? So you said the majority of the people were just kind of saying what they do and you obviously had a different approach. So how did you prepare for that? What made you decide to do something different just from experience? Yeah, yeah. And just trying to figure out how do we structure this in the right way? And they have a scoring rubric and, and they tell you how they're going to score you. So what you do is you reverse engineer it based on those things. I need to talk. The, the winner is the company that represents the biggest upside, the most um, experienced team uh, is going after the biggest problem, solving it. Like they, they kind of give you the hints. And so you just have to figure out how to pace your story so that it touches all of those points and, and does it away in a way that's memorable. And, and that's back to that example of the Toyota Camry. Like I had several points in the story that were really, really memorable that people latched onto. Moving on, we have talked about the challenges and me and you earlier, we mentioned just the whole FUD thing in cybersecurity. And because a lot of that is what made me start this podcast and the lack of trust between the customer and vendor, what advice would you give to our listeners to overcome the FUD? Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm completely allergic to FUD. Um, and you can look at it a few ways and, you know, you'll, you'll have people saying, well, if, the, if it didn't work, nobody would be doing it. And fine. Um, I'm totally okay with everyone else doing it because it allows me to set myself apart by not doing it. Uh, it's the wrong way to go for a multitude of reasons. Let's just start with the first, which is if everybody else is doing it, you're going to sound like everybody else. So stand apart. The second thing is how many times do you think a CISO has heard, well, we would have stopped the Sony hack or the target breach or whatever. They're just sick of hearing it. And plus you don't know that, right? So you already started the conversation with having no leverage and having them already doubting, doubting that you can do what you're saying you're doing. So there's so many reasons not to do it, but the biggest thing is it doesn't tell them anything about what you do and the value you can bring. 
right? Me being able to stop a breach that happened to someone else a, a couple of years ago, what does that tell me about what you do? It doesn't do anything. So, I, you know, I, I let anybody else do that. And I've said it before, which is the next time there's a big breach, um, just stick your head out the window and you can hear the sound of a million PowerPoints updating. And it's true. Like everybody else is going to do that. So if you're, if you're not going to do that and instead you're going to focus on the value you can bring, um, I think you're going to win people over. I think you're going to put yourself in a much better position to get them interested in what you're trying to do. And it's just, it's just slimy. <laughs> it, it really is. I, I'm, I'm the, the, biggest proponent of staying as far away from FUD as you possibly can. Why do you think people do that? Why, why, what is it about a fact or a figure that you think people are so drawn to that they're like, oh, let's put this in our PowerPoint now. This will sell it. Because I mean, it is so open and all over LinkedIn, it's just person after person saying, stop marketing this to me. It's not working. But then the very next post is a uh, someone marketing that. Two reasons. One, it's easy. The second reason is I feel like... Um, Cybersecurity marketers are intimidated by their targets. We don't do what they do. And so in many cases, it's because we're not as technical as they are. In many cases, because we don't really understand what what they do on a day-to-day basis and we don't understand their priorities. And so just relying on a fact of something going wrong, it's easy and there's no controversy and then no one no one's going to trip us up on the technical side of that by saying you know sony got breached because of this or target got breached because of this so i think part of it is just it's easy part of it is it's it's being lazy and then part of it is also saying i feel comfortable doing this because no one's going to call me an idiot um, those aren't good reasons to do it but i think those are reasons why it happens so do you think it's important to build a relationship with the people that are in the role and having an open line of communication to talk to somebody and be like, hey, is this is something you're feeling? Is this, how does this make you feel? And understanding yeah. a little bit more of the customer. Yeah. And that's what we do. So uh, one of the things I do a lot is work with our chief information security officer. I do webinars with them all the time. And I, I love doing it. And, and this is something that even if we didn't do it publicly and did it as, as if we weren't doing it as webinars, I think it'd be valuable to anybody out there is grab somebody on your security team and interview them about what does this mean? Like what? So we just saw that um, there was a, a breach. Uh, what was the one I saw today? I saw one on Wired and on uh, Threat Post. What was the one? Um, trying to remember it. Uh, oh, it was GoDaddy. So um so there was a, a breach with GoDaddy and um, it affected a, a huge number of credentials. And I, I got on the phone with our, our security team and I said, well, what is this? How did this happen? Does it mean anything to us? And just me understanding what really happened is, is a huge tool because it tells me how to reverse engineer it, but also how to think of like, these are the types of things that everyone um, on the other side is thinking about these are the types of attacks that happen. It might not have anything to do with the product I'm selling, but being able to understand it gives me so much more credibility. So I stay on top of all of that stuff. And, you know, I started off as a developer, so I'm, I'm sufficiently technical, but I always want to understand all of the different threats that are out there, even if they have nothing to do with what we are, because I love having conversations with CISOs and security people. And I want to be able to talk about the things that they care about at their level, 
Um, I'll never be as technical as some of them, but um, I can't imagine, say, if I was in automotive, uh, automotive marketing and I didn't know anything about a car. I don't know anything about a car, but if I was going to get in there, I'll tell you right now, I'd be talking to mechanics. And I can't imagine doing anything a different way without trying to understand what you're talking about. How long did it take you to feel confident and to talk to a CISO or whoever at that level? A year, probably a year. Yeah. And that's with a technical background. How much of your time did you feel like it was learning cybersecurity? I kind of immersed myself in doing it because I I took on the role of writing about it. And that's Mm -hmm. what I love doing is... um, Anything that I'm learning, I'm, I'm, uh, I, I take the perspective of what if I had to teach a class on this in six months? How would I bring myself up to speed enough that I could teach uh, an introductory class to whatever? And so I document everything and I write down everything I'm learning and challenge myself and then talk to other people. That's the easiest way for me to learn. I don't know if it works for everybody else, but um, I would suggest doing that because I started writing white papers on things I didn't know about. And I would say did I get this right at all? And I would talk to people and, and then I would have it in my own words and they would say, you know what, you got to not think of it this way. It's not, it's not that a vulnerability scanner is installed. It's doing something on the network. Like, like, so all of this nuance, once you have it written in your own words and can show it to someone else, they'll, they'll be happy to correct you and tell you how you should be thinking of it. And, and then that way you've got something documented that you can use for your own content. And I, I personally love that approach of, I'm going to learn this thing such that I could teach a class about it in six months, even at an introductory level. And it forces you to think about it differently. There's a lot of, I'm trying to think of the word, humility, I guess, where you are, you're putting yourself out there to learn something and asking people not, af- not being afraid to fail or be wrong. And I think that's really important. And it kind of brings me to what I want to talk about next is how I actually stumbled upon you. And that was after your invisible webinar and a really vulnerable video on LinkedIn that you posted. I mean, you look happy as a clam, but something went wrong and you addressed it in a great way, super strong. And I think that is a really notable story just to share with the listeners. Sure, sure. So um, Right now, with everyone doing more and more digital because there's no events, we were trying to think of what can we do that's different? How can we experiment? How, how can we try something new? And we came up with the idea, there's all this friction there where it's a pretty high bar for me to say, I want, I want to request a demo because that means I'm willing to get on a, a, a sales call with someone and get a bunch of emails and again, the bar is just really high for me to commit to that. So we've got all these people that are interested in Exonius in some level. It could be they've gone to a webinar or met us at an event or downloaded a piece of content, but that doesn't mean they're ready for a full-on demo, right? And so we were trying to think, what can we do with that? How can we reverse engineer it? And the thought was, if I were to just do a demo like I was going to do with an end user and did it in a way where anybody could see it, but they could be anonymous, then it's up to me to prove the value to them. And so I came up with this idea and called it an invisible webinar. And the idea was to broadcast live exactly what I would show to a prospect on our website where no one needs to register at all. And we would just broadcast it right there. Anybody could see it, they could ask questions. We just wouldn't know who they are. And hopefully if I show enough value, they'll they'll sign up for a real one. Now, 
we practiced this 15 times and recorded it and everything was fine. And then the day that we wanted to go live, everything failed, all the technology failed and we just couldn't get it to work. And so we had a couple of hundred people. Yeah. But we had a couple of hundred people waiting there and I'm like, Oh no, what do I do? And uh, so I just swapped out the recording and then I just put my camera on and and said, Hey, um, I'm really sorry. You know, we tried this thing and, um, I had to go and call it an invisible webinar. So I just kind of own up to the failure and then put it out there on LinkedIn, but then send an email to everyone. And, um, you know, one of the things we learned there is that people, people get it right. Technology fails. And, um, I, you know, I, I just love the idea of being able to experiment, but own the things that fail and, and show that you're human. And, um, you know, people, people pick up on that and, and they'll forgive you and give you another chance. And, and that's what we saw. Okay. So where can our listeners find you? Um, I would say pro- LinkedIn is probably best. Um, I, I stink at Twitter. I'm never on there. I always forget about it. So I'm always on LinkedIn. That's the best place to get in touch with me. Um, or you can always just uh, reach out by email. I'm very, very responsive. But um, the, the benefit to um, reaching out to me on LinkedIn is if you see people that you would like me to introduce you to, I'm always happy to do that. So um, I, I, I would suggest that more than anything else. Awesome. And is there anything else you would like to say, any piece of advice or any stories you'd like to share before we sign off? Oh, man, that's a big one. Well, I won't tell any more stories. I had a million of them and, and I don't want to waste too much more time for anybody that's listened this far. But um, yeah, I guess the number one thing is just connect. And this is a really tight community with people that want to help each other out. So it, it never hurts to connect to people that are in, in marketing and cybersecurity and um and ask for help. That's that's one thing people don't do a lot. And I think the biggest thing that we can all do together is make sure that we have a really crisp and clear story about what we do and what our companies exist for in a way that's really repeatable and memorable. And I know that's a lot easier said than done, but if you don't, you'll sound like everyone else. All right. Thank you so much for getting on here and recording this with me. I really appreciate you taking the time. That is it for this week's episode of Marketing Cyber Podcast. If you love the podcast, I'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give a review. Thank you for listening.
Yeah. So like everything else, it's never a straight line. I mean, maybe it is for some people. It definitely isn't for me. So I started off going to college as a marketing major and soon realized I was really bored. And uh, I, I went into it thinking I was going to love marketing and I just I wasn't learning anything. And instead, I ended up taking a, a sociology course and said, this is it for me. I love it. I love what I'm learning and understanding how people behave and think in groups. And it was just something where uh, 